Well, the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection of Jesus, we know, go hand in hand. Uh, combined, the death and resurrection of Christ are the very core of the Christian faith. This is uh, foundational to everything we believe, everything we are. And in the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, uh, proclaimed to the Jews, you killed him, but God raised him up, and so repent, believe, and be saved. I mean, this is that crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the gospel. That's, that's the core of everything. And Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote letters to churches uh, to encourage them and to keep them focused on what's essential, he said over and over things like this, like in Romans 8.34, that Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised. That's the essential stuff. In 1 Thessalonians 4.14, we have hope since we believe that Jesus uh, died and rose again. And so, we've been working our way through the gospel according to John for uh, almost two years now, and, and um, the finish line is in sight. <laughs> we, have a lot, we have some Peachtree Roadrunners that will be out there tomorrow, and uh, road racers, whatever you call them, and uh, that, that's uh, on the 4th of July anyway, in a couple of days, and, and so they'll, they'll, that finish line will look very sweet, and you get the t-shirt at the end. We have no t-shirts to hand out after we cross the finish line of John. I don't know if anybody's been here for every sermon. Anyway, you've uh, skipped ahead a few times, I'm sure. Um, but, it, but last week, and, and we're, we, we are getting near the end, and last week we looked at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And in the next verses, in chapter 20, we'll, we'll be at the resurrection. He is risen. Now, there's going to be nine weeks in between where we're going to take a break. And so what was uh, three days, really less in the sense of uh, uh, in the life of Jesus, we're going to have, again, nine weeks. But, but the question for us today is, okay, what, a, what about the space in between? Okay, we, crucifixion, resurrection, so what's, what's in between here? What are, we, what are we doing today? And are these verses between it is finished and he is risen just kind of filler? Just, just letting us catch our breath uh, and scene change or something. If this were a movie, is this a time when you get up and you go to the restroom and you refill the popcorn bucket and that kind of a thing? Because you, you, just, you, you make sure you're back for the good part, for the grand finale, but you come back and you ask your buddy, hey, did I miss anything? No, it's just some stuff about his burial. Uh, you didn't miss anything. Is that what we have here? Well, no, not at all. It, it, it may seem like these verses are kind of just simply filling in some uh, kind of incidental historical details. Uh, of course he was buried. That makes sense. What do, we, what do you do with dead bodies? You, you bury them. Why, why spend time stating the obvious? But listen, what's in this space between Jesus' death and resurrection is essential to our salvation. The, the facts of Jesus' burial are vital to God's saving plan. Patrick alluded to this with the image of the, the grain of wheat, unless it falls into the ground, that, that the, the, the seed of Jesus' crucified body has to be planted in the ground before it can spring to life and bear fruit. This is necessary. Our, our eternal salvation rests on the fact that Jesus' tomb was occupied before it was emptied. We have, to, we have to see this and understand this and believe this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, we have this clear statement. If we want to know what the gospel, what the good news of what God has done in sending Christ, 
Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. So this is, this is, the, this is what you put your hope in. This is that good news that, that saves. And this is what it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel. What? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so, so, so the, the burial of Jesus is core to the gospel. I, it was interesting just looking through uh, Bible commentaries, my commentaries on John, and, and even some sermon series that I've listened to kind of throughout this, this series uh, but particularly those commentaries that are more expositional commentaries where, in other words, it was a preacher who preached a sermon series and then it got turned into a Bible commentary. It's more like sermons in print form, basically. Those commentaries and many of the sermon series, really, they don't, they, there's not much that's said about these verses. And I kind of found that surprising that, that, that there's barely any mention of the burial, only in kind of passing reference as either a, an end note to the crucifixion. They'll a few sentences just to talk about the burial, or as an introduction to a sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but very little said about the burial. But the burial of Jesus really does matter. It is of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So we should, we should pay attention to what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about it. Now the question is, what does the Bible have to say about it? And that's what we're going to see now. And so we have this account before us in John chapter uh, 19, in these six verses, and, or five verses, but there's, there's details of Jesus' uh, burial that are found in all four gospel accounts, in Matthew 27, in Mark 15, in Luke 23, and then again in John 19. And so while our attention will be really directed to John's gospel account this morning, I, I want to first kind of combine uh, some details that John leaves out. I want to combine everything into kind of a seamless account. So you can look along with John, and, and if there's things that I say... I, that aren't in John's account, they're being pulled from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so the story begins late on Friday afternoon outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So Jesus is dead by about 3 p.m. Sundown begins at 6 p.m., and that marked the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And so once it's clear that Jesus is dead, uh, something has to be done with his body, and has to be done quickly before sundown, before 6 p.m., and so for some period of time, his, his dead corpse hangs on the cross, held in place by the spikes in his hands and his feet. And so he's there, dead on the cross. But eventually, a man that we read about in John's Gospel account named Joseph, from Arimathea, he, he steps forward. Now, all that we know about Joseph, this man Joseph, it comes from the four Gospel accounts. And, and if you put the accounts together, we learn a couple things. One, we learn he was rich. He, had, he was well off. Second, he was a righteous man. He was an honorable man. He, he did what was right in the sight of God. Third, he was a very religious man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the kind of the high Jewish council. This is the same group of people that collectively was so adamant that Jesus be crucified. Their, their opposition against Jesus was, was intense. But he was a member of this group that opposed Jesus so severely. So Joseph... As a member of the Sanhedrin, as a wealthy man, he's highly respected in the community. He's, he has influence. People know him. Uh, he, he, he is, he's, he's, 
He's connected. And so we're, we're also told that he, he never gave up hope uh, in waiting for, for God's promised kingdom, that, the, that God would send a Messiah to his people, to his people Israel. So he never gave up hope that the Messiah would come and reign. We're also told that he never consented to Jesus' death. Though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and though they voted and, and decided to, uh, that Jesus should be crucified, he, he kept the Sanhedrin from having any kind of unanimous vote for Jesus' crucifixion. And so he, did, he didn't consent. Now, while he couldn't stop the crucifixion, he would not support it. Now, how did he not consent? We're not sure. Did he cast a vote against it? Did he abstain? Did he just decide to stay home and not show up for that meeting? We, we, we don't know for sure. But here's the most important fact about Joseph, and this is something that was completely unknown to the Jewish council, to the Sanhedrin. They didn't, they didn't know this about him, but he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus in secret. So we, we don't know his testimony, and it would be wonderful too. We don't know the circumstances of how this began for him, but, but sometime during Jesus' ministry, he became convinced that Jesus was the promised Christ, the Son of the living God. He believed in him for salvation, trusted in Christ. And so if the Sanhedrin had known this, he would have most likely been kicked out, but at least he would have been harassed and ridiculed by them and kind of pushed aside. But Joseph, he's, he's, he's been in the shadows as a secret follower of Christ, but he stays in the shadows no more. He comes out of hiding here. He takes off his disguise as the little religious guy with the pointed hat that, that everybody looks up to. No, he, he, he now publicly identifies himself with Jesus. And look how he does it. He, he bravely goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Now, remember, we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks. Pilate has had it with the Jewish leaders. He is furious with them. And so, as, as Joseph goes to them, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he has no idea how Pilate's going to respond to this request, that he, he, that if he, that he can take the body of Jesus. And so he goes. This is a courageous move. Uh, and, but he goes, and Pilate's first response is one of shock, not that... Joseph asked for his body, but shocked that Jesus is dead. Normally criminals that were crucified, they, they lived much longer than six hours on the cross, sometimes several days. And so here, you know, Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m., and by 3 p.m., he's already dead. So Pilate's not sure about that, and, 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 and so he summons this centurion, uh, who was at the cross and kind of in charge at the cross, he calls him before himself to, to give an account to, to, to see if, in fact, Jesus is actually dead. Now, his, his quick expiration on the cross is in part because of the savage treatment that he received, the, scourge, the scourging that he received and all of the abuse that was done to Jesus before he was crucified. But also, the greater explanation is that he ultimately was not killed, he laid down his life. He gave up his spirit, uh, John says. But, but when, when Pilate learns from the centurion that he's actually, he really is dead, he gives Joseph permission to take down Jesus' body and from the cross and to bury it. Now that was not normal. That's not the way things were done. This is very out of protocol. What was normal was for the dead bodies of the crucified uh, men to just be kind of cast and thrown into this 
this nondescript mass grave for criminals. And so they would just be thrown into these graves. In the case of someone charged with sedition of kind of making a claim for the throne, Jesus, King of the Jews, that was the inscription over his cross, the charge. And that was what Jesus was charged with officially. In that case, the dead bodies would be left on the crosses for several days after, the, after they died. And, and, the, and the vultures would just come and pick at their carcasses and, and whatever was left would just be thrown into the kind of the city garbage dump, this burning ash heap that was called Gehenna that never, that never stopped burning. And so they would just throw whatever was left in there. That was the normal way for someone crucified like Jesus was to be, for his body to be disposed of. So it's surprising that Pilate allows Joseph to do this, except for the fact that what was clear is that Pilate had never seen a prisoner like Jesus. There was a mark made on Pilate. He, and, and Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent. He didn't, he didn't want to see Jesus crucified, but he, was, he feared man, and he was a weakling, and he was a conniving guy, and, 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 and he was manipulated by the Jews, and he's afraid of the Jews. And so he consents to Joseph, yes, take his body, bury it, do what you want with it. Now at this point, Joseph is joined by another secret disciple of Jesus that we see in our text here. Nicodemus, verse 39. Now it seems apparent that these guys are working in tandem. Apparently they, believe, they, they knew that the other believed in Jesus. They may have had this, they may have been secret disciples, but shared this knowledge between one another. But here coming out of hiding together to give Jesus an honorable burial. And so we met Nicodemus before in John's Gospel, way back in John chapter 3, you know, many, many months ago. Now, uh, Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, he, he went to Jesus late at night under the cover of darkness to ask him some questions. He didn't want anybody to see that he was making his way to talk with this radical rabbi uh, but he had questions for Jesus. He was interested, in, and so he goes to Jesus at night, and, and it's in this context, John chapter 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you, you, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And it's in this context, John three sixteen, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's, it's in, that's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John, Jesus offers this good news and holds this out to, to Nicodemus that, that night and that encounter and that conversation. Believe, Nicodemus, and you can be born again and you can have eternal life. Well, sometime between that night and this night, uh, uh, this, this day when Jesus is crucified, this Good Friday, Nicodemus also became a secret believer in the Lord. And so he believed and he followed. So it's, it's, it's ironic when you think about it. The, the, the men that Jesus has been closest to for these three, three and a half years of public ministry, those 11 disciples who, who have been with him for everything, they're, they're hiding in the shadows. They're, they're, but yet we have these secret believers who are part of the Sanhedrin. Ah, the evil guys, the bad guys. And they're coming out of hiding, taking risks to bury Jesus' body. This bold, risky move. And the 11 closest followers, they're nowhere to be seen. So, so you have these two coming out of the shadows, risking their necks for Jesus, and you have the 11 closest friends of Jesus who are hiding in the shadows to save their necks uh, and keep from being associated with Jesus. But listen, 
Nobody expected Jesus to rise again <laughs> bodily and, and, and in a matter of hours. Nobody expected that. Nobody was waiting for that or looking for that. If you ask any of Jesus' disciples, hey, do you believe Jesus will rise again? They would say, absolutely. He will rise again on the last day. There will be this future eschatological day, many, many, a long, long time from now, when, when he will one day rise again. Yes, and, and, and so they carry out the burial in that way, as if this is going to be Jesus' resting place for a long time until that great last day of resurrection. So there's this tiny flickering hope of this far distant future uh, resurrection as they buried Jesus' body. But that's it. Nobody's looking for him to raise from the dead three days later, even though he said he would. They're, they're thinking metaphorical. They're not, they're not thinking that's what could possibly happen. So, so you have Joseph. You have Nicodemus. And they go and they take Jesus' body down from the cross and prepare it for burial. That would have been very difficult, very messy work. And you just think of, again, what, what that would involve. His body is in awful shape at this point. He's got blood oozing from the deep lacerations. He's a hole in his side that's been pierced by the, uh, the spear to make sure he was dead, and blood and water poured out from that wound, and his holes in his hands and his feet, and his face has just been pulverized and beaten beyond recognition. And so they, they, they take his body down, probably with the aid of soldiers getting the cross down and taking these spikes out of his hands and feet. And they do the best they can, I'm sure, to clean the body, but they can't do a proper, thorough job. There's just not enough time. And, and they prepare Jesus' body for burial. And again, I appreciate the word earlier how in the scripture and just think of think of these men their 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 hope their eternal hope has been placed in this man he is the promised one the son of god and here is his limp body right there bloody bruised just looks awful and they're caring for his body and so the the custom of the jews was to wrap the dead body and the entire body in these strips of cloth and they would they would sprinkle this mixture of pulverized myrrh and aloe and other spices in with this and, and kind of layer it between these strips of cloth. And it would kind of glue all of that cloth together. But the main purpose was to mask the, the awful odor of decomposition. And so, so this is what they're doing. And, and John says that they had 75 pounds of spices. Now, that was not normal. That was an inordinate amount of spice for this. This was unusually large. This is only the very wealthy would, would have a, their bodies prepared for burial like that. And that's what these men have done. At great cost to themselves, they've, they've brought all of these spices and, and, have, and are wrapping Jesus' body, preparing this. And they have to work fast because according to Jewish law, they, 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 have to, they can't handle a dead body on the Sabbath. So time, the clock is ticking. So it's well past 5 p.m. by this point. If you just think of what's transpired, and it would have to be at least a couple hours and probably two and a half hours from when he died to, to this point. And so they have to hurry. And so in one of the many God-ordained coincidences, and I use that term sarcastically, uh, that we see in this scene and we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, Joseph just so happens to have recently purchased a tomb um, 
that, that was hewn out from the rock, carved out from the rock. And so it's a very expensive kind of grave. This is not just some natural cave, which would be more normal, a, kind of a natural recess or a cave, and they would kind of convert it into a place to bury the dead. No, this was chiseled, carved out of solid rock. They, and so this was a very expensive tomb, something only the very wealthy would ever be buried in. And this was no doubt intended for his own use. When one day he died, this is where he would be buried and possibly his family. And so not only is this expensive tomb, though, uh, unused and available, it's close by. It's right there. We can see it. And, and so it's just yards away. It's in the garden right by Golgotha, the skull hill where Jesus has been crucified. It, and, and so it's only... It's now just a few minutes before 6 p.m. And, and the sun's slowly setting on the western horizon. Those shadows from those olive trees are getting really long now. They've got to act fast. And so they pick up the limp, lifeless corpse of our Lord and they half drag him, half carry him to this tomb of Joseph. And, and, and between the weight of the body and the linen and the 75 pounds of spice, it's probably weighed 250 pounds at this point. And so these two, these two once secret disciples of Jesus, they carried the dead body of Jesus into the tomb. Close behind them, we learn, are Mary Magdalene and another Mary, and they're just sobbing as they watch this, and as they follow along. The entrance to the tomb is very small. They have to stoop down and bend low to enter into this tomb, and and inside the tomb, it's dark, and especially this late in the day, and it's musty, and it's damp, and they have no time to waste. So when they get inside, they, Joseph and Nicodemus, they, they, they place, place his body on this ledge and then they turn to leave. They go outside and there's a stone that was already in place with a trench there for it to roll in place. And they roll this heavy stone in front of the entrance of the tomb to seal it off. And the women sitting off to the side, again, just weeping. And then... Joseph and Nicodemus leave. And the two Marys, they they leave. And darkness falls on that garden cemetery. Everyone's gone. Tomb is silent. Stench of death. And that's, that's the end. That's the end of the scene. That's the picture that John and the other gospel writers paint for us here. Now, we're going to talk kind of the implications of what this means for us in just a moment. But a, a common question that comes up whenever we talk about the burial of Jesus, and maybe this question that rolls around in your mind, as we talk about the space between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, is where is Jesus during these three days? I mean, we know where his body is. Where is his spirit? Where is the eternal Son of God during these three days? Um, I have to be very brief here. I had left a couple of pages on the cutting room floor uh, where there's much more that could be said here. But, but we, we have to understand something to, to answer that, to, to get to that. We have to understand something about the relationship between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. In the incarnation of Christ, and his, when, when God, the eternal God, the Son, came into this world, born as a baby, and, and he took on human flesh, he, he became the God-man, fully God, fully man. Two natures, divine nature, a human nature. And, and we know that on the cross, God, Jesus' divine nature, it did not die. He, the 
Jesus in his godness did not suffer because the divine nature is immutable, unchanging. And so Jesus didn't stop being God on the cross. We can't say that. But the God-man suffers. The God-man dies. Jesus' human nature suffers. And in his human nature, he suffers on the cross and dies. But God doesn't die. God isn't dead for three days. If God were dead for three days, this whole universe would just cease to exist. Because Scripture says that, that, uh, that, if, that if God were dead for a, a split second, everything would, would, would just cease to exist, for He upholds, He sustains everything by the word of His power. So we'd just, we'd just be gone. So we can't think that God dies at any point here. But, but then what is the relationship between that divine nature and the human nature for those three days? Let me just say a couple of things. First, the, the divine nature, Jesus, is, is united to His human corpse. In this sense, that just as the divine nature was united to the living body of Jesus, during this interim time, the, the, the union of the incarnation still exists as the divine nature is united to the dead body of Jesus. And I'll show you why that's important. But also, the divine nature is perfectly united with the living soul of Christ. And where was that? Well, we know where it was. It was in heaven. How do we know that? Two reasons. He told the thief on the cross who made that profession of faith in Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I realize that requires a lot of explanation and, and I know there are different understandings. But take it at face value. Second, at the end of his experience on the cross, the very last words Jesus said was, into your hands I commit my spirit. He died. And I think, I think the, that makes it clear. The, so, we, so we have every reason to believe that at the moment Jesus died, that divine nature of Jesus remained united to his soul, which was, which was in heaven in the presence of the Father, and also to his body, which was in the tomb, and, and, and which body and soul were united again at the resurrection. And so I know that's a lot, and that's a lot to wrap our minds around, but we're just trying to see what the Bible... There are a lot of questions that we obviously don't have time to address, and ones that you may have... Some of those I couldn't answer even if I had time because I don't know. And there, are passages, there are certain passages like Ephesians 4, 8 to 10 and 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20 where you read 10 commentaries and you get diff- 10 different explanations on what this means. And, and you know the Apostles' Creed that we've talked about recently. There's a phrase that was in, not in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed, but that he descended to hell. So did Jesus descend to hell during those three days? And if so, what, what does that mean? Or was it to Hades? And... Uh, there's a lot of questions. I will say he didn't, I don't think there's any biblical evidence that he descended to hell. And there's certainly no reason that Jesus would suffer anymore or, because when he said it was finished, it was finished. And it was done. There was no atonement left to be done, no suffering left. And, all right, we can't wrestle all those questions. But now that I've kicked the hornet's nest, let me go to the question that I really do want to concern ourselves with in the minutes we have left. It says, why so much detail about Jesus' burial? Why is this here? Why not just go, just take a breath and then go straight to the resurrection? Why is this so important? Why is the burial of Jesus of first importance with the death and resurrection of Christ, according to Paul? Let me give you several reasons, real quick. They all begin with P, so if you're taking notes, I'm trying to give you some help. First one is proof. First reason this is so important. It's proof. The tomb serves as a death certificate. It's proof that Jesus 
really did die. It was, a, it was an issue in the early church. It remains an issue to this day for some. There are some who've claimed that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he was swooning or just kind of a fainting spell. He passed out on the cross. And then when he got in that cold, damp air of the tomb, his, his body was kind of awakened up and he was revived again. And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. You're just looking for a, a reason to doubt the, the, what's clear in Scripture. And the Roman soldiers confirmed his death. They, they were experts at killing people. Jesus couldn't pull that off. Jo- Joseph and Nicodemus, and, and they're close, intimate. Think of all that's involved and all of the closeness of handling Jesus' dead body. You, th- you don't think they would have realized if there was just the slightest spark of life left in Christ's body? No way. And wrapping up and the spices, there's just no way. The, the details of his burial reinforce the central truth that Jesus really and truly died on the cross. And that's not a light matter. It's not, it's not a negotiable thing for us as believers. Our whole salvation is bound up in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not the substitutionary swooning, but the substitutionary death. He died so that we might live. If He didn't really die on the cross, then we can't truly live. And so, if His body never actually died on the cross, if He only fainted and was revived, then the price for our sin has not been paid because the wages of sin is death. And so there's, there's, there's only been this useless bloodletting if He didn't actually die. On the cross. And if there's no death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, then we're without hope. And so that's the first thing, all for reason for all his details, just to prove, make it very clear that Jesus actually died. Second reason, this is so much detail, is prophecy. That the circumstances of Jesus' burial, they're showing the fulfillment of Scripture that was written some 800 years beforehand. 1 Corinthians 15, again, that we quoted earlier, 15, 3 and 4, said Christ died, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Jesus died by the book, He was raised by the book, and He was buried by the book. According to Scripture, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He was buried in a way that nobody could possibly have imagined or expected. It was inconceivable, again, that anything would have happened to His dead body other than to be dumped in in the city landfill. And, and yet God spoke long ago what would happen to the promised Messiah's body. And in Isaiah 53, we've seen so much of the fulfillment of that chapter uh, throughout this, this part of Jesus' sufferings at the end of John's Gospel here. So it's no surprise that through Isaiah, God spoke with great detail uh, about the Messiah's burial. And so he, he says in Isaiah 53, uh, I'm just going to start verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened out his mouth. And uh, so we see, we've seen this fulfilled. Verse 9, and they made, they assigned his grave with the wicked. That, that's what was expected. And Gehenna, just to be thrown in the dump with other bodies. That was, that was where his body was assigned to go. But he was with a rich man in his death. Oh, that's exactly what happens. What's expected is his body is dumped in the landfill. What happens is he's buried in this rich man's tomb. 
And Joseph had no clue that he was fulfilling prophecy by doing this. He, 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 he's simply trying to give Jesus an honorable burial. He just so happened to have this unused carved out tomb. And it just so happened to be right there beside them. And it just so happened to be so late in the day that they didn't really have any other choices. So they, they take body, Jesus' body in haste through this little tomb and they bury it. It was not planned, but that's, it's fulfilling this 800-year-old prophecy. Every detail of the Old Testament prophecy concerning Christ's death, burial, resurrection is perfectly fulfilled. And so this is another thing. It reminds us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, that we can always trust God's word. Everything that he says will happen, will happen. We can trust his promises are true. Third reason this is all here with so much detail is, is it's a picture. It's a picture. Jesus' burial is a picture of what's happened to our sin. The Bible declares that Jesus died for our sins. Was his, the question is, was his death sufficient to atone for all of our sins? Or were there any sins that, that weren't paid for by his death? This is one of the greatest truths that we realize as we begin to study the, the burial of Jesus Christ. Because we as Christians, we can agonize over our sins, particularly over our past sins. We wonder if God has truly forgiven all of our sins or we worry that some of our sins are so heinous, so awful that I did that, that I said that, that I thought that. And we wonder, surely there's this stench in God's nostrils and he's just put out by me and he wants nothing to do with me. There's no way that God can forgive me. There's no way that that can really be atoned for. It's so bad. But then we look at this text. The simplicity of what John says, that they laid Jesus in his tomb. And then we go to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4, and we get Paul's explanation of what's happening here. And he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that's not just talking about water baptism, but the spiritual baptism, we're identified with him, we're, we're brought into him. We, we've been baptized into his death. And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And that truth is what, what, what forms, um, what he builds his case on for, uh, for, for lives of holiness there in the rest of Romans 6. But he's saying, it's wonderful, the oldness of our sinful lives apart from Christ have been buried in the grave and through Jesus' death and resurrection we've been raised to, to new life, to newness. So when Jesus rose from the dead, when the grave was empty, there was, there was no pile of sins left to be dealt with. In the, it was, there was nothing left. They were, they were gone. There was no penance left to be done. There were no works of, or demands or service that need to be done to remove any sins. It's, it's all taken care of. All of the condemnation deserved by our sins has been faithfully put to death in Christ at the cross. And as He was buried, so were our sins. They're done with. When he, raised, when he was raised by the glory of the Father, he, he, was no long, he didn't carry our sins out of, the, out of the grave like, okay, I've died for them and here, I guess I'll keep... To-. No, it's gone. It's gone. There's newness of life. Our sins were left in the grave never to require judgment again and never to burden us again. One of the greatest pictures and, 
and literature of this is from John Bunyan and the, his allegory, this great Christian allegory on called the Pilgrim's Progress that many of you have read. And throughout the early person, uh, portion of the story, you have, you have the pilgrim who's traveling along with his burdensome load on the back, and he's doing everything he can to remove it himself in his own power. And then there's this scene. It says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced by on fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. And up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty. The load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, the burden loosed from his shoulders and fell off from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. (laughs) If you are in Christ, your burden of sin has been removed from your back and has tumbled into the grave and you will never, ever bear its condemnation again. We can gladly confess with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we sang this a minute ago, that glorious day. That's actually a very old hymn. It was called One Day, and it's been redone here with a new melody. But living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, a glorious day. So there's this picture of our sins being removed. All right, I've got to hasten here. Power. It's the next word, power. The grave is strong. And, and so we have this grave setting itself up as this great foe. But what do we find out? Jesus is stronger. He is. And we're going to obviously see that very, very clearly in John 20. But the, the grave here represents the finality of death and all of the fears of death that are associated with it. And fear of death is widespread, isn't it? We, we all have this fear, this nagging fear of death. But when our Lord is laid in the tomb, He meets death on its own turf. Takes it on. And, 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 and the grave that so long taunted us. And, and yet, but Christ being buried in that tomb, He conquered death and its fears on our behalf. And so it's, this, this grave is just set up as a show of the power of Christ. Another, uh, another um, uh, thing that we see here is, is it's a prelude. And kind of going from the power to prelude, it, it sets the table for the resurrection. It, 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 the, the stage is set for the big climax that's coming. We, we can be thankful that John's gospel account doesn't end in chapter 19. Praise God that, that, that we go right from the description of the burial to nine weeks from now. He is risen. <laughs> he is risen. And so the story of Jesus doesn't end at the grave. Every, almost every biography you read of people that are dead and gone, the, the last chapter is about their death, and you end at a grave. Not so with Jesus' story. His burial is just a prelude to his resurrection. Two more. Pattern. Pattern. This, this is a pattern for the redeemed. Jesus' body is laid in a tomb for three days. He's... he's uh, he allowed the grave to apply all of its muscle against him. Show me what you got, grave. Show me what you got, death. And, and then in mighty power, Lord, burst forth from the tomb as, as living Lord, as our Redeemer. 
And, and in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the longest portion of Scripture that's talking about resurrection, and, and he has two purposes in writing this, Paul does. And we've quoted this and alluded to this several times already this morning. But one, he's wanting to prove the validity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his bodily, literal bodily resurrection. And secondly, he wants to make sure we understand that, that, that those who are in Christ will one day also be raised with an imperishable body. We'll be raised again with him. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. So Jesus' burial, it's a pattern. It's a pattern. It gives us a pattern that we will follow. We, we, our bodies will one day die and we'll be buried and our souls will go to be with the Lord instantly. And then one day our bodies will be resurrected and united to our souls for eternity. And so there's a pattern. The last thing, it's a platform. It's a platform for faith. Platform for faith. This is, this is when Joseph and Nicodemus, when they go public. Joseph's a believer, John says, but he has this significant flaw. He is afraid of the Jews. He fears man. He, he, is, he just buckles under the pressure of popular opinion. He was a disciple in secret for fear of the Jews, verse 38. And this fear gripped his heart. But that all changes on Good Friday. He's transformed from being this nervous, weak, faint-hearted, secret disciple of Christ into this bold, gutsy, risk-taking, courageous, faith-filled follower of Christ. He's a changed man. Now, When he walked back to the cross, after going and asking Pilate if he could bury the body of Jesus, when, as he's walking back to the cross, you realize he is walking away from everything. He's walking away from his riches. He's walking away from his religion. He's walking away from those relationships that he's treasured and, and that respect in the community. He's leaving everything behind now that he's coming, coming out of hiding as a follower of Jesus Christ. He'll be ostracized. He's really a model disciple. He, when faced with the prospect of losing everything, he publicly identifies with Jesus. And in, a, in a much greater way than the eleven really do, he's modeling what it means to deny himself and take up his cross and follow after Jesus. You can't help but admire this man's love for Christ. And what was it that broke his cowardice? What was it that inflamed Joseph's heart with courage and, and with devotion and love for Christ? What was it that brought this secret disciple out of hiding? Was it thinking back on Jesus' mighty miracles that he witnessed, no doubt some of them? Was it, was it some memorable sermon that Jesus preached that, that did it? Was, it? was it reflecting on Jesus' sinlessness? I'm sure all of those things played a part. But that wasn't enough to, to really chase away his fears of people. What was it? It was the cross. Changed everything. It was the power of the cross. It was, it was the day that Joseph stood bef- below the cross of Jesus Christ and he beheld the man upon the cross, his sin on Jesus' shoulders. He saw our Lord. The one he'd been following, here he is on the cross. 
everything changes for him. It was this irresistible power and appeal of blood-tinged love, love of Jesus, that gripped this weak disciple and broke the shackles of his small faith, set him free. I'm, I'm, I'm out there now. The cross is a place for change. There's power for change in the gospel of Christ. It's a platform for faith to explode in our lives. I would just say, students, young people, you're, you're there at school, and, 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 and maybe you're a secret disciple at school for fear of your classmates. You've been saved by Jesus. You, you secretly love Jesus, and you, you know you should tell others about Him, but you're, you're afraid. You're afraid to open your mouth with your friends. You're afraid of what it might cost you. Friendships, popularity, acceptance, invitations to great parties, and dating relationships, and scholarships, whatever it is. So you keep your lips closed. As you really consider the cross of Christ, young people, listen. As you really consider the cross, what he did to accomplish your salvation, then you can be changed by God into a courageous, faithful, bold follower of Jesus Christ. This is a platform for faith to grow. That goes for the rest of us. I'm not just talking to young people. We're all timid. We all... We're all disciples of Jesus Christ, but somewhat in secret for fear of. So in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, around the world, among the nations. The cross changed everything for Joseph and Nicodemus. But there were people who stood around that cross, right beside these two secret followers of Jesus who were now going public, and they didn't respond the same way, though. There were streams of pilgrims who walked by the cross and mocked Jesus and and scoffed at Him and just kind of looked away in indifference at Him. There were soldiers who stood around and and, and jeering at Him and and making fun of Him. And so there were a lot of people who, who saw but didn't believe. There are people today who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't believe. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. But some did believe, like Joseph, Maybe you're here this morning, and like Joseph once did, you're only giving Jesus kind of half-hearted devotion. You're still in secret. You know Jesus' worth. You, you claim his name. But because of your love for pleasure or love of position or just kind of general indifference, your devotion is only half-hearted. You're a secret disciple. To the fearful, to the shackled, to the indifferent disciple, I pray that the story of the burial of our Lord would be a call to take our place at the foot of the cross and see Him there and be changed. That we would measure our lives, that we would measure our aims, measure our ambitions, measure our dreams, measure our successes, measure our goals, measure all the things that keep us from full devotion to Him, against the backdrop of the cross. That's what we would see. And we, can, we would stop messing around. You can't honestly look at the cross and absorb its full meaning and then live this kind of shallow, self-focused life. You, you don't get it. 
There are millions and millions of souls in this world who've, who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Almost a fourth, a fourth of all of the people groups of this world have, don't, have zero churches and have really a non-existent Christian witness for them. And yet we go on praying like infants. I'm talking to myself. Shallow, repetitious, duty-bound prayers. And we give... We give as little as we can. And we, we spend hours and hours scouring Craigslist or on social media, and then we just fret because we just don't seem to have time to meaningfully engage our neighbors in any serious way with the gospel of Christ and get to know them. It's not them. It's not they who need to be transformed by the power of God. It's me. It is, brothers and sisters. It's me. And it's you. I am Joseph. You're Joseph. I need to behold him there. Be changed by him. And I, what would our church look like? Uh, what, what would our church look like? How might God use us if we were transformed into a self-denying, risk-taking, courageous, compassionate congregation? How might God use us here? Let's pray. Father, if there are any today who feel beyond the reach of your grace, God, I pray that, I pray that this scene would, would show them that there is no outer limit to your grace. If you could save a member of the Sanhedrin who, who grossly manifested evil in crucifying Christ, if you could take someone, one of the most unlikely people to ever become a Christian and change their life radically like you did Joseph and Nicodemus, God, and you can, you can save anyone. And so if there's anyone here who feels beyond the reach of your grace, I pray that they would see the wideness of your mercy and come and believe in Christ today and the forgiveness that you offer. And if there, there are other, for all of us, God, we struggle. We struggle to live in secret, to hide wear disguises and we're embarrassed and we're ashamed and we, we fear people. God, may we behold our Lord on the cross, our Redeemer dying in our place. And may that radically change us. And we can go a step further. And we know that the tomb is empty and he lives and he's with us. So God, help us to go, go and go and go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. To glory in you, our Redeemer, God, as we're going to sing now that you bought our lives and you own our love. It's yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.